And so let's pray, and we'll get into our message this morning. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, we are here focused on your Son, the Savior of the world. Lord, we are so grateful for his voluntary sacrifice so that we can have a different life, a better life, an eternal life. Lord, we are grateful for that. I pray that we will honor you and your Son and the Holy Spirit today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, your identity matters, doesn't it? If you decide to travel to another country, you have to have a passport. It proves who you are. It gives you a credential. If you go to my bank and try to take money out of my account, I hope they will check your ID and make sure that you are, um, you know, that, that I'm who I am or you're not the right person to get that money. Identity matters. When we vote in Alaska, we have to show our ID. And so identity is important. It's interesting to me, when you look at Jesus Christ, you look at this person, you know, a couple thousand years ago, who lived and died, we believe rose again and lives in heaven, and you see that all of human history is divided before when we believe he was born and after. We see that when you look, if you were to go back in history and look at the mighty Roman Empire, and then you were to look at the followers of Jesus, this pretty small group that honestly hadn't been that impressive throughout uh, Jesus' ministry. They would argue who was the greatest and all of that. If you were a person who liked to bet on which one would you know, just thrive and flourish and still be here as far as uh, the entity that they lifted up, a couple thousand years later, I think almost everyone would put their money on the Roman Empire, which at its heart was Caesar is Lord. But the church is alive and well today. Millions of people, all nations all around the world, so many people, about a third of humanity, I've even seen estimates as high as half, I tend to think the third of humanity, who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, say, He is my Lord and Savior. And so, who is this person? Who is this person that has motivated people to fight against slavery and injustice, start orphanages and nonprofits that help people, that do humanitarian aid, that uh, save lives, uh, started many of the colleges across our country? And you see hospitals, so often their name is, you know, where I'm from, Methodist Hospital, you know, Presbyterian Hospital. You see names that point to that Christian origin. Who is this person, Jesus Christ, that so many follow, that has had such a profound influence on the world? Well, I happen to love the Gospel of John. It's my favorite gospel. And we're going to look at the prologue this morning, the beginning, and it's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's a longer passage, but I want us to look at this, and as you listen to this and look at it up on the screen, I want you to think about what stands out to you about Jesus as we read this. What strikes you about him 
as John shares and begins his story of telling the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, this is the reading of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, if you had a Jewish background or if you have a church background today, you're immediately kind of taken back to, oh, that sounds like Genesis 1-1, and that's very intentional. He is not pointing to a person that lived for 33 years in this very narrow slice of human life. We are talking about God the Son who is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, meaning God the Father, and the Word was God. This is clearly calling Jesus divine. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So this is John the Baptist, which the Gospels point to as he's the roll out the red carpet for the long-awaited Messiah, who is Jesus. That's his role. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him All might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though and and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So there is rejection here. He came to that which was his own. This is the Jewish nation, long prepared by God for their Messiah, their anointed one. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. You see, God had to reach out. We couldn't just decide, despite our sinfulness and our rebellion, oh, I'm going to find a way, create a bridge to heaven and eternal life. We couldn't do that. It rested with God taking the initiative. He had to send his son to provide a way to build the bridge. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That's pointing to the eternality of God the son of Jesus. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father who has made him known. So when I look at this particular passage, I see two main ideas. Now, there are several subpoints under each one. But the first is that there is truth about Jesus when we look at this particular passage. And then the second idea is our response to Jesus. How do people respond to him? So the first idea is the truth about Jesus. Well, first, Jesus is God. He is the creator. You know, when you read this particular passage, particularly if you had a Jewish background, you might be a little taken aback. Because if you look, verse 17 and 15, you see that Moses, the great lawgiver, Moses, the one who led the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt, is kind of second fiddle here in this passage. 
He's not the focal point. And then you see John the Baptist, this prophetic voice. There's been hundreds of years of silence between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And here comes John the Baptist, the first prophet they have had in hundreds of years. And yet he gets kind of secondary status because the focus is on Jesus Christ. Notice John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say he made everything. So Jesus is God. In our culture today, most people, at least that I talk to, are pro-Jesus. I rarely meet someone who's like, I, I hate Jesus or I'm against Jesus. Most people are pro-Jesus. But it's a greatly shrunken Jesus. He's a prophet, or he's a good teacher, or he's a social revolutionary, or he's, you fill in the blank. Understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians who believe the Bible, we believe Jesus is God. We follow and worship God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand this. He is of the same essence as God the Father and God the Spirit. He is not just a man. And this is not just John's idea. This is woven through the beliefs of the early church. The Apostle Paul, who, remember, was an enemy of the church when he was Saul, met the risen Christ and became Paul, the great apostle, missionary, and author of much of the New Testament. He says in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Don't stumble over the word firstborn. That doesn't mean created. That just means premier in importance. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So everything that's been created is by Jesus and for Jesus. That is the top rank. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, this biblical writer says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And I love the next couple lines. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. How else can you say he is fully divine? Sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins, so salvation... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so where does he sit? He sits right next to God, the Father, for all eternity. In John 1.18 of our text, it says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, did prophets sometimes have visions of God? Yes. Were there theophanies where God kind of took on a, a, an image of a person? But in Jesus, we have God the Son, fully divine, combined with, you know, fully human. This is an amazing thing. We call it the incarnation. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, we see people testify to the deity of Christ. Nathaniel, Peter, the blind man who was healed, Martha, Thomas, and we call him Doubting Thomas. That's certainly not where he ended up. 
and clearly Jesus himself. C.S. Lewis once made it very clear that Jesus did not give us the option of viewing him as just a good teacher or just a prophet. Either Jesus, with the claims that he made, was mad, crazy, insane, or he was who he said he was, fully God. We're not left with an in-between. And understand that there are churches, there are people that call themselves Christians, they may throw the word progressive in front of it, but they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you start leaning in on this, is Jesus God? And they start backing up, well, no, he was a good teacher, had good things to say, he was representative. No, no, no. Jesus himself said that he was God. In John chapter 8, He's having a conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And in verse 58 and 59, so they they were talking about Abraham. And in essence, he says he knew Abraham. And they're like, what? That's like me going, yeah, I I knew George Washington. What? That doesn't work. And he says, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now that is a name for God. And he is claiming being eternal. Eternal. And what's their reaction? At this, they picked up stones to stone him. What is that for? Blasphemy, proclaiming to be God. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So understand this. You cannot rest on the position that Jesus was just a prophet or just a teacher or just someone that's helpful, a great life coach. He's either fully God or he's a liar or mad or a lunatic. He understood and declared boldly who he was. And they reacted. They thought it was blasphemy. In John chapter 20, verse 28, we see doubting Thomas. So Thomas was one of the apostles, but he missed when Jesus rose from the dead and came and was among the apostles. And so he wasn't with them. And so they're all telling him the story. And he's like, well, I'm not going to believe it till I can touch the wounds and I want to see his hands. I want to touch his side. And so we kind of give him that nickname of Doubting Thomas. But then Thomas is with them. And this time the risen Christ shows up. And Thomas, this monotheistic Jew, first century He says in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. He says, you're you're God. You're divine. Now, this is a big deal. For instance, maybe you've had Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Understand that they'll say things like, well, he's a God. He's lower than the Father. He's not fully, you know, fully divine. So there's different ways that people attack this. And that is why there are certain parameters to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a Christian. This is one of those foundational doctrines that Jesus is God. Now, I always find it interesting to look at what someone says about their enemy, someone that they're opposed to. Like, if you know, if there's a public figure today and, you know, they... I happen to be a leading Republican. If you go read what the Democrats say about him, you'll get an interesting picture, right? If he happens to be a leading Democrat, you go read what the Republicans say about him, you'll get an 
interesting picture. So I think it's fascinating to see what do the enemies of Jesus say about him in the first century. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who most opposed him, said of Jesus that he's a friend of sinners. I actually like that as a sinner. That's, that's good for me, good for you. Judas, who spent time with Jesus several years, but then ended up betraying him for whatever reasons, he says afterwards, before he took his own life, he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And so he looks at Jesus even despite his betrayal, and sees a purity, a holiness. What about Pontius Pilate? He's the one who sentenced him to death because of political pressure. But what does he say about Jesus? He, says, he said, I find no fault in him. What about one of the criminals? You know, there were two criminals that died, one on either side of Jesus as Jesus died on the cross. And if you look at the gospel accounts carefully, both criminals mock him at the beginning. You know, the old saying, hurt people, hurt people, and they kind of take it out on him. But then one of the criminals watches, and he sees some things. You know, there were several hours of darkness. There's, I mean, just the way Jesus handled himself. He's praying for forgiveness for those who did it, and he changes his mind. And he actually cries out to Jesus before his death and says, you know, hey, he asked for salvation. Will you remember me? So this person who mocked Jesus turns to Jesus. And then the Roman soldier that oversaw the death of Jesus on the cross, his reaction after he died was, surely he was the Son of God. You see, it's been said for thousands of years God gave us his voice by sending prophets in a sense. But at Bethlehem, God sent himself, the fully divine son of God. And so we need to see that Jesus is God. The second idea when it comes to the truth about Jesus, like I said, there's several subpoints here, is that Jesus is life. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to mention it. In John 1, 4 of our text, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This verb here is used uh, 36 times, this word uh, for life. It's something that John emphasizes a lot. In Jesus, in essence, he's saying, hey, he is creator, and so there's kind of our basic original gift of life, but then he's also redeemer, savior, and so we get eternal life through him as well. One of the basic, you know, there's certain basic things we have to have for life, and I know it's probably a big list, but, but here's a couple of them. You know, to have life, we have to have light. If you just flipped a switch and turned off the sun, I know it feels like that sometimes in the winter in Alaska, but if you actually did it, we're all dead, right? You have to have light to have life. And Jesus says that he is light. Jesus says that he offers light. Notice that he, he actually claims to be the light of the world. You know, he also, we have to have breath to have life. If I stop breathing, it's done. And yet Jesus offers us the Holy Spirit, and one of the images of the Holy Spirit is breath or wind. And we need that. 
We're also told, you know, when we look at life, we have to have water. You can go a while without eating food, some of us longer than others, right? We have a little more storage, but you have to have water. A couple days in, three, four days in, you're in deep trouble if you don't have water. And yet, he gives us the Holy Spirit, who is called what? Living water. He is the center of life. He's also, we have to have food. We have to have food to live. And he says he's the bread of life. And you tweak that to yourself, you know, if you need gluten-free, that's all good. But he's the bread of life. He's sustenance. He's what we need. And so Jesus is life, not just an abundant life here, a better life here, a life filled with purpose and calling, living on mission, a life in connection with other people, a life in connection with our creator. He offers us all of that but he also offers us eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In John 20, verse 31, which is kind of, I think, the summary statement of this book on his purpose for writing, John says this, But these are written, so these are these signs, these miracles that he talks about throughout the book, pointing to who Jesus was, that you may believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so Jesus is life. We also see that Jesus is light. In John 1, verse 5 through 9 of our text, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent by God, so he talks about John there, a witness to testify, and John had quite the following. John had to be really clear with people, I'm not the light, I'm just pointing to the light. But then um, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and that was Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the very person who is truth. Truth is not just a list of propositions, even though we talk about the Bible being a book of truth, and it is, absolutely, completely. But truth is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate reality Now, sometimes light in Scripture means, you know, that propositional truth, that there is an absolute truth, which is foreign to our culture today. We live in kind of a postmodern era. I was reading an author's name, Todd Friel, and he talked about going to a a graduate school in Atlanta, Georgia, and he said, he said, I began to suspect that this particular student was postmodern in his thinking, meaning that all truth is relative, that really it's just preferences, that there's not an objective reality to truth. And so he, he says, well, I'll just kind of have fun with this. And he says, so he points to a bench and he says to the student, what is that? And the student says, it's a bench. And then Todd, this author, said, he goes, well, I don't think it's a bench. I think it's a watermelon. Am I wrong? And the student said, no, you're not wrong. Because he couldn't bring himself to say that he was wrong about anything. He was at Georgia Tech, and he talked to a young man, and he said, I I thought this phrase was kind of fun. He said, I smelled postmodernism in our conversation. And so he said to the young man, he said, what is two plus two? Young man said, four. And he said, well, I think it's seven. Do you think I'm wrong? Young man said, nope. I don't think you're wrong. 
He said, do you think I'm right? He goes, no, I don't think you're right. But, you know, you have your truth. I have my truth. I don't think you're wrong. Now, the the terrifying part, this particular student at Georgia Tech was majoring in engineering. So do you want to drive over that bridge? I don't think so. You see, our culture is fine with faith as long as we don't get too dogmatic about the object of faith. But I'm telling you, the object of faith is what makes the difference, right? To use a Fairbanks illustration, so you can have all the faith in the world. You can be a great man or woman of faith and just incredible in your faith, in your trust on thin ice. How's that going to end? You go out on the Chena River and try to drive on thin ice, how's that going to end? But you can have just a little seed of faith if the ice is thick. It's the object of faith that matters. And John chapter 1 is telling you, I'm, he's saying, let me hold up the ultimate object of faith. Put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians disagree on various things, peripheral issues, But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's this laser beam, just confirmation and agreement on the person of Jesus Christ, on his sinless life, his death on a cross for our salvation, and that he walked out of his own grave, and he has ascended to heaven, and he will return someday. So Jesus is light, he is truth, and he offers us light in a dark world. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, same author, different book, says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is a God of truth, and he is light. God the Son is light. The Holy Spirit is light. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light is so powerful. If we turned all the lights off in here, I could walk around just because I have done it a lot and not run into a bunch of stuff. But if you did it, you'd run into a bunch of stuff, right? Light matters. And even a little bit of light. If we turned all the lights down and I just had one tiny little flashlight, it would be amazing how powerful that one little bit of light is. It makes a difference. And Jesus is the light of the world. The next idea when it comes to what this passage teaches us about Jesus is that he is fully human. He is fully human. We just talked about that Jesus is God, and that's absolutely crucial. But we, we don't want to fall off the side and just, you know, Jesus is just God and not acknowledge his human side. You know, you can see this, people kind of do this almost in an amusing way where like, you know, Mary has little toddler Jesus in the bathtub and he's walking on the water. You know, it's hard to wash him, you know. That's, that's not accurate. He's fully human. He lived life on our terms. He became a baby. It's an incredible journey from God the Son in heaven being adored to being a toddler. Max Lucado says of Jesus in the manger, he says he's God in a diaper. That's a stunning image. The incarnation is a radical trip. 
that God the Son took for us. He is fully human. In our text, John 1, verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. So Jesus became flesh. God the Son became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, that means tabernacled. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from his Father, full of grace and truth. So that idea of dwelling among us, tabernacling with us. Well, if you have a Jewish background, you immediately go to when the people of Israel... The Jewish people were set free from slavery in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they had like a portable church, basically. They had this tent, and they would set it up, you know, when they were going to camp for a while. You know, we did 12 years, some of you were there, we did 12 years of church in the Regal Movie Theater. And it wasn't that bad in the summer. We had to haul all the equipment in and haul it all out before the first movie came on. But I'll never forget the Sunday. It was 64 below, and that was brutal. I'm so grateful for this building. But they had this tabernacle. And it said, the scripture said that God dwelled. He offered his presence in that tabernacle. He tabernacled with his people. He dwelled with his people. And then we see it again. Um, We see the presence of God, the glory of God dwelling in the temple, the permanent temple that Solomon built. And then we see this heartbreaking scene where uh, the glory of God departs from the temple. But now, God has come fully. God the Son has been joined with humanity in what we call the incarnation. And Jesus is fully Human. He took on flesh through the virgin birth and lived life on our terms, never sinning once so that he could offer the perfect sacrifice. The incarnation is God's bridge to humanity. We couldn't build that bridge. Only God could build that bridge. He does it through the incarnation. As we read the Gospels, we meet a divine Jesus But we also meet a very human Jesus. We see in John 4, Jesus was weary. We see in John 4 that Jesus was thirsty. We see he groaned within him in John chapter 11. We see that he wept in John chapter 11. We see that Jesus died in John 19 and that he bled in John 19. We see a picture of a living, breathing human in all that that entails. We see him so exhausted that he's asleep in the bottom of a boat in a storm. You ever been that tired? You ever had a kid that just wouldn't sleep, you know, the colicky baby? It can wear you out. And so we see a fully human Jesus. One author said this, Jesus Christ, the meeting place of eternity and time, the blending of deity and humanity, the junction of heaven and earth. And I like that. He was one person but two natures, both fully divine and fully human. So what's our response to Jesus? Our response to Jesus is that Jesus was rejected and many people reject Jesus. In our text, John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking, this particular passage. So God the Son makes this stunning journey from glory and heaven and constant worship to become a baby, to become a peasant, to live among a persecuted and 
oppressed people, the Jewish nation, and yet, in John 1, 10 and 11, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, so that's the Jewish nation, but his own did not receive him. Now, some Jews did, but not all, and many did not. And as a whole, the Jewish response was rejection. I think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. A group of people that God worked with and prepared and promised this anointed one, this Messiah, and so many rejected him. Some of you may emotionally kind of identify You've had this child you poured into and they hit the teen years or the young adult years and they're really difficult. And there's that rejection. Here's the deal. When it comes to the gospel, this gift of salvation, it has to be accepted. Just because Jesus offers himself, just because Jesus offers this gift, if you don't take it, you don't have it. Which leads us to the last idea, Jesus created an eternal family. We see this in our text, John 1, verse 12 and 13. Yet to all who did not receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So God took the initiative and he built the bridge, and we can accept that gift. We can walk across it. It is... You need to get this, because I hear this all the time. People refer to, you know, all of humanity, we're the children of God. No, we're not. We're made by God, but to be a child of God is to be part of his family, to have accepted this gift, to have committed yourself to him, to, in essence, pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. He created an eternal family. It's interesting, often God will grab somebody and change their name. Like, you know, I make you part of my family. Abram becomes Abraham. You just see that Saul, the, the opponent of the church, becomes Paul, the great apostle. You see this kind of thing. Uh, Jesus, one of his apostles was Levi, and he becomes Matthew you know, Levi, I was reading one source and kind of looking at what does Levi mean as a name, and it tracks it back to the Old Testament where you have this scene where, you know, one of the patriarchs of Israel and he had two sisters that were his wives. Now, that is a disaster. That is a horrible um, soap opera. And the unloved sister was Leah, and she had Reuben, and then she had Simeon, and then she had this third child, Levi, and um, the name is, they say, is, is a, the source I read said it's a cry for help. So kind of the image is, um, and, and you know, we, had five, we have five children, and so we get this. There is something about being outnumbered by the children, right? There's something a little painful to that at times. But, you know, imagine the mom, and she's got, you know, uh, uh, she's got one son here, Reuben, and then Simeon, one hand here, one hand here. Now there's a third one. And the cry is, you know, will he accompany me? Will this husband finally love me and walk beside me? So it's a cry for help. 
But then I love the name Matthew. Levi becomes Matthew. And Matthew means gift of God. And so we cry for help. In a sense, Levi to Matthew is our story. We cry for help. We can't save ourselves. We're not good enough. We're not holy enough. We're not perfect. But God offers us the gift, his son. And I love the purpose statement of John chapter 20, verse 31 of this gospel, where he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's written all about these miracles, these signs that point to the Messiahship of Jesus. And he says, I told you this story. I wrote this gospel. I gave you this narrative so that you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the name Jesus itself means Savior or Deliverer. And that's what he is to me. And I hope that's what he is to you. And if you've never chosen to follow Jesus, I just want to encourage you. Come talk to me. Come talk to anyone you've kind of seen around or listed on the back of the bulletin. And we'd be happy to talk to you about that. And pray with you and point you to repentance. We have to acknowledge our stuff. Point, point you to the public side, you know, making a decision. You're going to see a baptism here in a bit putting that stake in the ground, saying, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. So this morning, my big idea is this. I encourage you to follow the one and only Jesus. Follow the fully divine, fully human Son of God who lived a sinless life and offered it on a cross for your sins, your rebellion, your brokenness, so that you could be forgiven and you could have the certainty of eternity. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I pray that we would be, if we have made the decision to follow Jesus, that we would walk in that, in the power of your Holy Spirit, that Jesus would be pleased, that you would be pleased by our lives that we live. But Lord, if there's somebody here who has not made that decision, I pray that the conviction of your spirit would fall and that they would talk to us and that we would have a conversation that hopefully would lead to a conversion, a commitment to your son, the only way to heaven. Lord, this is our prayer in the powerful name above all names, Jesus Christ, amen.